to the book of Ephesians. And if you need a Bible, just lift your hand and the ushers will throw one at you. You will never forget your Bible again. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be picking up in verse 8. We're not going to get too far. The Bible often likens the Christian life unto a journey. In the Sermon on the Mount, that famous sermon that Jesus gave there on the Mount of the Beatitudes, he spoke to his disciples and he gave to them a contrast. He spoke of two paths. He said that there was a broad way that led to destruction and that there were many that walked that path. On the other hand, he said that there was a narrow way, a straight path that led to life and few there be that find it. And he introduced to his disciples a concept that walking with him, a life lived for him and with him, would be likened unto a journey. In John's gospel, Jesus, not too far from his crucifixion, spoke to his disciples again, and he said that he was the gate, or the door, if you would. The door that people would go through, that come through him in order to find themselves on the narrow way that would lead to life. Again, giving this picture of a journey. Almost always when we're given instruction or insight in New Testament doctrine, it is coupled with the words to walk or to run, giving again this idea of a destination and a place or, 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 or a, a, a journey that is being taken in order to get somewhere. When Jacob met Pharaoh at the end of his life, having been brought down to Egypt by Joseph, and he's brought into the presence of Pharaoh, at that time the most powerful man in the world. As he introduced himself to the Pharaoh, he said, as he said his name, that the days of the years of his pilgrimage were 130 years. He saw his life as a journey that God had taken him upon. The Apostle Paul often in his letters refers to the Christian life as a race or as a marathon more specifically. The longest of all known foot races, you know, in that professional sense. It's a journey. The Christian life is a journey. And it spans the entire length of a lifetime. Now, whenever anyone sets out on any type of a journey, they always make necessary preparations and provisions for what they are going to be doing. If you're going to be traveling at night, you make sure that you're carrying with you some type of flashlight or illumination system whereby you'll be able to see the path that you're walking upon. If your journey is uncertain, you're definitely going to carry with you a map or some type of navigation system so that you don't get lost along the way. If the journey is going to be long, then you're certain to make provision for it. Make sure that you have an abundant supply of food or of money, some way that you'll be able to sustain yourself upon your trip. In the case of the Christian life, this journey that we're on as we walk this narrow way, and having a sense of destiny, it's so long, and the path is so laden with dangers and things that would seek to take us out and destroy us and keep us from attaining our destination. It's necessary that we as Christians are prepared for the journey that we have been called into. God is the one that has called us into this life. It is God that has set our feet upon this path and given us this destination. And God, who knows the length and knows the difficulty of all that we're doing, tells us certain things that we need to know so that we're prepared and ready for all that we will meet as we move from here to heaven, as we walk through this life walking with Him. In our study tonight, in these next few verses of Ephesians, God is going to tell us essentially three things that we need to know as those that are walking this narrow way. As those that have a sense of destiny, that have been called by God and have been set on this path and we're going somewhere. 
He gives to us three things to keep always in the forefront of our mind every day as we travel and walk with him. Now in verses 3 through 7, which we looked at last week, Paul gave to us seven things that all accompany the one act of our redemption. Those seven things that were all inclusive at the moment that we gave our hearts to Christ. Starting with the blessing that we have in heaven and finishing with the redemption through the blood. And just encapsulating what took place at the moment that we started this walk. What happened at the moment that we walked through the gate and came into this Christian life that we were saved. In a sense, all of that was given to us in those first verses there as Paul describes the salvation experience. And all of that speaks of the door or the gate that Jesus said that he was in John chapter 10. But what Paul is going to give to us tonight as the journey begins, we've been redeemed, the Christian life has begun, and now he's going to hold before us three things to never forget, never forget as we walk with the Lord in this life. Imagine for a moment, if you can, keep that picture in your mind, and you are the one, and you've just gone through that gate. You've been invited by the Lord Himself. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been washed in His blood. You've been made new. You're a new creation in Christ. And as you come through this gate, and before you is this path that's so straight as an arrow, and oh so narrow. And as you start your way on it, the doorkeeper, he hands to you an envelope. And he says, this is from the Lord. And it's something here. He's giving this to you right at the onset. Because he knows that you're going to need it for the journey. And so you take that envelope from the porter, the doorkeeper. And you look at that envelope. And there inscribed right on the front of it are the words, wisdom and prudence. And you're captivated by that as you look at it. And if you would there, look with me at verse 8. As in verse 7, he finished with redemption, and he speaks of it as being through the grace. He says in verse 8, wherein, speaking again of the same grace that saved us, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And it's as if the porter hands you that envelope and you see those words there. God gives to you. He abounds toward you in wisdom and prudence. Now, you say, well, what is this that I'm holding in my hand? Wisdom? Prudence? Well, wisdom is very simply just the application of knowledge. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is taking what you know and then applying it in the proper way to produce a beneficial outcome. A man or a woman may have understanding or knowledge of aerodynamics, how airflow works and and all of that, and they might have a vast understanding of the concept of aerodynamics. But wisdom takes that knowledge and uses it to create an airplane. It applies the knowledge in such a way wherein the outcome is beneficial, A mode of transportation has now been created because the concepts understood through the process of aerodynamics have been applied in the proper way. It's wisdom. It's applying proper knowledge. Solomon, who is the picture of wisdom in the Bible, he he took what he knew. He had knowledge and understanding of a mother's heart. And when two women came to them contesting over whose you know, child this baby was, he took what he knew of a mother and he applied it in his judgment. He said, cut the baby in half and give half to this woman and half to that one. Knowing that a true mother would never, under any circumstances, allow her son or her daughter to be murdered in that way. And sure enough, the true mother spoke up and said, no, 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 let her have the baby. And Solomon said, that's the mother. And it says that the fame of that decision went throughout all of the land. Why? Because he took what he knew, he applied it in giving a decision, and it was wisdom. That's wisdom. And it's written right there on that envelope that God has abounded towards us in wisdom. And prudence, very simply, is simply carefulness. It's discretion. It's attention, paying attention and being careful So if he's abounded towards us in wisdom and prudence, he's given us something and he's also telling us in the same breath, be careful, you're going to need it. 
And so we take this envelope and we, we are, are, are grateful, we're thankful, we, we're benefited, we understand that God is blessing us. And as we open it up, we see that inside there are three articles. Three articles under this heading of wisdom and knowledge or uh, prudence that we're going to need upon our path. And so we look inside and we see three things that are in these next few verses, verses 9 through 14, that God would have us to always keep at the forefront of our minds as we walk along with him. And so we open and the first thing that we see in there has the heading, the motivating will of God. The motivating will of God. In verse 9, he says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. That he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, what this is speaking of when it talks of his will here in verse 9, it isn't God's will for your life. Because many, all of us, we pray, we say, God, what is your will for my life? What is it that you want in my life? What is it that you're doing? And that's not what it's talking about here. It isn't talking about your individual situation. But it's talking about the will that motivates God to do everything else that he does. What is God's will at the very core of his being? What does he want? You know, sometimes you can be trying to figure out someone's position or you're trying to figure out where they're coming from. And, and you know, you feel them out and you go this way and that way. And you finally get to the point where you just say, what do you want? What is this all about? And here Paul is telling us that God has abounded towards us and that he has revealed to us the mystery of his will or the driving force behind all of what God does. What motivates God? And he tells us what it is in verse 10. He says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That is that the will of God or the thing that motivates God the most is that he wants his people near him. That at the end of the day, when everything is over, what God wants above all else is that he wants his people close to him. This drives him. It's what motivates him. And what it means is that everything that God does stems from this desire to have us near to him. It's what motivated the incarnation for God to send his only son that he loved into the world. To take on human flesh, which is a huge step down if you really think about what that was. For God in all of his glory, the same God that was seated upon the throne there in Isaiah chapter 6 that broke the will in the mind of Isaiah as he was there and saw the smoke of the temple and heard the cry of the angels and saw the glory of God. And then to realize that that same God took off his robe, took off his deity, stepped into human flesh and became a man made like unto us in the same sinful form that we were in. It's a huge step down. But that was motivated by God's desire to have people brought close to him. It's what he wanted. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It motivated the incarnation. It motivated the crucifixion. That as that same son whom two times the father said from heaven that he loved him. And that son said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And so great was the love of God towards you and towards me. That he gave that cup of suffering to his son so that you and I could be saved and set free. Motivated by God's desire to have us near him because that's how much God wants us near him. It motivated the incarnation, and it also motivates all that he does and all that he allows in our lives as those that have been bought by him and that are walking with him and that are heading towards heaven. Everything that God wills and allows in our lives is motivated by his desire to have us near him. That's what he wants. He wants us close to him. The Bible says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. That that's where true life and light and blessing are found in the presence of God. 
It's where we find our source to bear fruit, to lead fruitful lives. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. The branch can't bear fruit of itself except it's attached to the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. And the source of all fruitfulness or any good that comes out of our life comes as we're near to him, close to him. And so he wants us close to him. The Bible says that in his presence, there are pleasures forevermore. And God sees his people going and seeking for pleasure in things that cannot produce lasting pleasure. For a season, they may pique our senses or do something in us that, that, that makes us think that there's some blessing, some life, but in the end, it leaves us empty. But in his presence, there are pleasures forevermore. I'm plagued constantly by that verse in Jeremiah where God says that my people have committed two evils against me. One, that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, that they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And God watches from heaven as he knows that he's the source, the fountain of all that is and all that lives. And he wants to be that for his people, and yet he sees them forsaking him so that they can have some fleeting pleasure that can't last in an earthly sense. And it breaks the heart of God. The Bible says that in his presence there is refuge and strength, that we find safety there, that that it's there that we find what we need in order to, to live this life. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and walk and not faint. It comes in the presence of the Lord. The Bible says that in his presence there is peace, that there is provision, that everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in him. It's in his presence and it's in nearness for him. And everything that is good that that a person can experience comes from being near to God. And that's why God wants his people near to him. Now, There are many things that separate people from God. Sin separates people from God. That's why God hates sin. Sin is not bad because God says no. It isn't that God said yes to this, no to that. Yes to this, no to that. Yes to this, no to that. I'm just going to make a list and and, and I'm going to... No, no, no. That's not how it works. He doesn't say no. I'm going to screw this up now. He doesn't... The point is, it's bad. Never mind. (laughs) Sin is bad because it separates us from God. It's not the other way around. It isn't that God just says no. It's that he knows what's going to happen if we do it. And so he says no because he doesn't want us to experience the pain of being separated from him. Sin will separate you from God. The self-life, living for self, living to please self, letting self govern and move your, your, your decisions and the things that you do separates us from God. The affections and the lusts of this world and of this life separate from God. 1 John 2.15, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lust. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. And so when we live lives centered on the affections and lusts of this world, it separates us from God, and God doesn't want us to be separated from from him. So what's the point? The point is that God hates whatever separates people from him because what drives him is having people near him. That's what he wants. Now, why is this important to understand? Why is Paul bringing this to our attention here at this point? Because if we understand what motivates God at the root of all that he does, then it will help us to understand and determine his will within our individual lives. Knowledge of his will. Do you understand? Knowledge, wisdom. He's abounding towards us in all wisdom. Knowledge of his will is that he wants me near. But wisdom concerning his will that is abounding towards me, the proper application of what I know to bring me to a beneficial place, is that if I understand that God's motivating will is that he wants me near him, then it helps me to understand that such and such a thing is happening within my life because God wants me near him. That if this trial has come my way, if this difficulty or this obstacle or this denial to a prayer request, whatever it is that might be 
plaguing my understanding if I realize that everything that God does is motivated by his desire to, to draw me close to him, then I understand that it is good because he wants me near him. It helps me to pray effectively because we know what he wants. He wants me near him. And so we can pray, Father, you know what's best for my life. You know if this job is going to bring me nearer to you or not. You know if this blessing, this wife, this house, this lifestyle, this whatever it is, this thing, you know if it's going to bring me closer to you or not. And so, Lord, you do what you will, what's best. Because what he wants is what's best for you. I remember when my wife and I got engaged, you know, we were relatively new Christians. And how do you find out if God wants you to get married or not? That's one of those big ones, you know. And we were both in that same place where we liked each other, but we really didn't want to screw this one up, you know. And so we immediately just took it to prayer. We were like, well, let's pray. And what we got, what came back as we just prayed and and talked was, you know what? We just believe that God is not going to lead us into something that's going to destroy us. So we'll step, we'll, we'll have an engagement, and then we'll see if he opens the doors or if he closes the doors, and we'll yield to what he does. And God just blew the doors wide open. And we could see his will. But his will for us is what's best. It's what he wants, see? I'm going to tell you the secret to a happy life. Are you ready? Whatever God wants for you is what's best for you. Therefore, if you want to be happy, set yourself in a position where you want what God wants. That's the secret to all of life. You say, well, that's very simple, but it's true. You see, the reason why people flocked to Jesus when he was living on this earth is not because he was handsome. The Bible says there was nothing in his appearance that made him stand out. It certainly wasn't because he was rich. He said himself that he didn't have a place to lay his head. It was something there where they looked at Jesus and they saw something that they'd never seen anywhere else. There was a quality of life. There was something in his eyes and just the way that he lived and the way that he moved and and multitudes were thronging him. To just be in his presence, to hear his words, not because it was the cool thing to do. Certainly there were some people like that. But it was so much more. There was a quality of life, an essence about him that was so rich and that was so real. And the reason why people flocked to him is because they wanted it. There was something inside of them that resonated with who he was. And it agreed. It said, yes, this is what life is. This is what it's supposed to be. Well, what was it? What was it that caused Jesus to possess such a quality of life? Because, yes, he was God. But understand. That his earthly ministry, he had set his deity aside and he was living among us fully man. And so what was it about him that people saw, that people craved, that they wanted in their own lives? You know what it was? It was that Jesus was constantly surrendered to and continually desiring his father's will. It's the way that he lived. Everything that he did, he took as God's will or did as God's will. He was bidden to come and heal Jairus' daughter, the centurion. She's sick. Lord, come heal her, please. And Jesus said, I will come. And so Jesus, on his way there, with an agenda, with a direction, going somewhere, on his way to heal this man's young daughter. But along the way, there's a woman. For 12 years, she's been bleeding. She's been to every doctor. She's spent every dollar. And she says within herself, if only I can touch the border of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. And so she works her way through the crowd on her hands and her knees between the legs of the people. And she reaches out and she just grazes the border of his garment. And she knew immediately, as soon as contact was made, that the issue of her bleeding was quenched immediately. And it tells us that Jesus, perceiving that virtue had gone out of him, he stops. And there's a big you know, pile up behind him as people bumping into each other. And, and he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, are you out of your mind? Everybody's touching you who touched No, 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 virtue went out of me. Somebody touched me. What is it? And something happened at that moment. Jesus was interrupted. He was going somewhere. He had an agenda. He had a purpose. He had a schedule. 
But yet at that moment, his father's will trumped his agenda, his schedule. And what was there is that God empowered him to be able to deal with what came about at that point. And he adapted his life to his father's plan in that moment as that woman touched him. And it was an opportunity for ministry, for healing, for blessing, and for salvation, and for revelation. He was on his way to vacation with his disciples. They were crossing over the sea, and Jesus, they had been busy, and he said, come on, let's get away for a little while. And so they get in a boat, and they go across the Sea of Galilee. And the thousands of people that were with him on this side said, he's going over there. And they run around the outside of the lake, and when Jesus gets there with his disciples, there's 5,000 people waiting for him on the shore when he gets there. Now, I'm certain his disciples were frustrated. Lord, tell him to go, you know. Jesus said, no, no, this is my Father's will. This is ordained in heaven. And Jesus spent three days with them and then said to his disciples, hey, these people are hungry. Give them something to eat. And what could have been a frustrating interruption turned into a mega blessing as those people got to see the miraculous, as Jesus got to experience his father again working through him, feeding that multitude of people. Why? Because everything that happens is the father's will. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that as children of God, as as we are children of God, that everything that happens to us, that we're to see it as God's will in our lives? Is that how we're to live? Is that what the attitude that we're to take? Yes. But wait a minute. There's been some pretty pretty crazy things that have happened to me, things that, that, that you would never, ever, and, and as a Christian, that you would never say that that's God that did that to me. No, 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 listen. What did Joseph say to his brothers after spending 13 years in dungeons and in prisons and in slavery and in destitution and in loneliness? He looked at them after seeing God's plan unfold and he could say, it was not you that sent me down here, but it was God. What did Job say? Job, this man that had been blessed with so much wealth, and Satan literally came in and blasted his prosperity and took from him everything that he had. And what did Job say? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. This isn't Satan, Job said. This is God. He has done this in my life. And it's his will. David, the king who had been established as the gold standard for all of the kings of Israel, His son, Absalom, had birthed the rebellion and brought the people against the king. And David took his men and he left Jerusalem. And as he walked out, not knowing what would happen, not knowing where he was going or what would become of him, a man named Shimei, who was David's friend, walked on the the ridge that was across from where David was walking the whole time, throwing rocks at the king and cursing him. The Bible says with with a dark curse, just constantly cursing. And David's men said, let us go over there and cut his head off. We won't have to strike twice. And what did David say? He said, if God has put it in Shimei's heart to curse, then let him curse. Perhaps God has put it in his heart to do it. Even Jesus, the most righteous, there he was in the garden. And Judas The one who dipped with him in the cup, his friend, came with a band of soldiers. And as Peter drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus arose and he said, put up thy sword. Listen to what he says. He said, the cup that my father giveth me to drink, shall I not drink it? You say, no, 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 that was Judas. It was given to him by Judas, but it was mixed by his father. And it's the key to all of life is to realize that, listen, everything that happens to you, the good and the bad, comes from God. It is His will. And it is the wise and happy person that esteems it so and says, God, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Let your will be done. Why? How? How? Here's how. Because you understand that everything that God does, everything that God wills, is because His desire is for you to be close to Him. That's what He wants. 
And everything that he does in your life is working to that end to draw you closer to him. And if he allows blessing in your life, it's because it's going to draw you closer to him. If he allows trial and difficulty in your life, it's because he knows he's going to work it to the good. And someday you're going to see blessed be the name of the Lord for you've done this great thing in my life. And the first thing is we open up this envelope as we realize that this is what drives God, is that he wants his people in his presence. He wants his people close to him. And what he does, he does for their benefit, for their blessing, to draw them close to him. The second thing, and we see it in verse 11, in this envelope that God gives to us at the very beginning, concerns our destiny or our destination, where we're heading. He says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after, again, listen, the counsel of his own will. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, when we think of an inheritance, we typically think of it in an earthly way or in an earthly scale. You picture someone who is destitute, someone who is poor, someone who's kind of lived as an orphan. And one day there's a knock at the door. And as the, the knock on the door comes and you go to it, there's a man there and wearing a suit and a tie and, you know, with an esquire after his name. He says to you, are you so-and-so? And you say, yes, of course. And he says, well, your long-lost uncle has died. And you are the only known heir and you have just become a multi-gazillionaire, you know. And you are now the, you know, in charge of all of this and all that. And, and it's like this fairy tale dream. And that's kind of how we think of an inheritance, this, this uh, fairy tale type of thing that goes on. But our inheritance that we have in Christ is far different, and it's also far better. It carries with it two connotations. One is an earthly, and one is a heavenly. In an earthly sense, our inheritance is that we are partakers of Christ. We have obtained a, a portion or a part of Him as He has come and lived inside of us. And I say a portion, but you know that it's all. We have all of Him. But he does something within us, and it causes us to bring forth a, an expression of who he is. It's, it's an earthly thing. It's part of our lives now. I think of when Jesus was there at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And he asked them the question, and he said, who do men say that I am? And they had all kinds of answers. They were trying to be the best one. Well, some say you're like Jeremiah. And some say you're like Elijah. And some say you're like that, that prophet that Moses spoke of. You know, and, and they have all these answers. And finally, Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He's like, yeah, I won. Yes. You know, that really was what he was like. But you see what happened there in that interaction? Is that Jesus said, when people see me, what do they think? What is it that, that they are dreaming up in their mind concerning who I am? And think of the answers that came back. Some say you're Jeremiah. He was the weeping prophet. Some say you're Elijah. He was the powerful prophet. There was nothing in common between Jeremiah and, uh, what's the other guy's name again? Elijah. There was nothing in common between those two. They were completely separate. Nothing alike. One was the prophet of power. The other was the prophet of weeping. One was successful in his ministry. The other was an absolute failure. But what was it? Here's what it was is that it wasn't that Jesus was an expression of Jeremiah or that Elijah, you know, or Jesus was an expression of Elijah, but it was that Jeremiah in some form was an expression of Christ. Elijah was an expression of Christ in another way. And all of God's people throughout all of history and even into the present day are an expression in some way of him. It isn't that people look at him and say, yeah, he's like Nick. They would never say that. But there may be and there are things in each of us that people would say and say, that's Christ-like. Their ability to selflessly give. Their ability to selflessly and tirelessly serve. Their ability to love unconditionally and forgive on the spot and not hold a grudge. What is it in your life? But in some form, if you are a child of God, he has placed his spirit within you. And there is an expression of God that comes out of your life that can be expressed by no one else other than Jesus Christ himself. 
He's given that to you. That's part of your inheritance, that you have the privilege of carrying the light of the glory of God in your earthen vessel. What an incredible blessing that we have. That's the earthly side. But on the heavenly side, oh, Jesus is coming again. And there is a day coming when where he is is where we will be. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The glory of the kingdom that is coming is going to be yours because my desire is that you are with me where I am, Jesus says. And in that day when that trumpet sounds or when, if it's God's will, that we die and we pass through that river and we come to that celestial gate, that city of gold, all that is his will be ours because we are united with him. We're one in Christ. Peter, in 1 Peter, spoke of it this way, verses 3 through 5. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope, by the way, is a hope that grows and gets brighter every day. A dying hope is what this world can produce at its best. You know what it's like to hope for something in this life, right? The hope of it just diminishes and gets, you know, I watch my children and any parent wants what's the best for their kids. And I see that they have all these aspirations. You've got to see what my daughter, Hosanna, wants to do with her life. My goodness. You could not do it in 10 lifetimes, all the things that she wants to do. But I remember being that same way when I was her age and I watched as all of those hopes slowly faded and got darker and darker as time passed by and the opportunities never came. Because that's all this world can produce is a fading, dying hope. But Peter says that we've been brought, bought, redeemed unto not a dying, fading maybe, but unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is our hope? Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What does this have to do with the journey that we're on as Christians as we walk this narrow way? It has everything to do with our journey. Why? Because as sheep, or just as human beings, fallen human beings... If we forget where we're going, and maybe you're like me, if you forget where you're going, you tend to wander. Don't you? Don't we? If you don't have a destination or don't have a purpose in where you're going or what you're doing, then we, we maybe go off to the left or to the right or, or our attention is drawn and captivated by something this way or that way. But when we have a purpose, a destiny, somewhere where we're going and we know why we're going there and what we're going for, then we with laser-like focus can go right where we're going to go. I remember one time uh, I was talking to a farmer. And I asked him the question, I said, you know, it's amazing when you drive down the road and you pass a cornfield, you see these rows of corn and they are perfect. You know, you're, you're, you're coming on at a 45 degree angle and you can see straight through to the other end of the field. And then when you're directly perpendicular with it, you can look down the lines and every line is as straight as an arrow. And then again, as you're leaving and you look back and, and, at a 45 degree angle, perfect lines. And I once said to, to the farmer, I said, how do you do that? I mean, do you like snap chalk lines on the field or something and, you know, plant seeds? How, how does that work? And he said, here's how it works. He said, the newer tractors, the newer technology, they use lasers and autopilot and all that stuff. But in the old days, a real good farmer, here's what he would do. He would set up his tractor on one side of the field. And he would look down and he would find a point far on the other side and he would set his eyes directly on that spot and then he would put his foot on the throttle and he would not remove his eyes from that spot while the tractor moved from one side of the field to the other. And as long as his focus stayed on that one point and he didn't vary from it at all, it would produce a perfectly straight line one side across the field. And then he would simply turn around, line himself up, and repeat the process coming back. And it's the same idea that we have why God holds this before us and says, listen, there is a living hope. There is an inheritance. There is something that is coming that is so far beyond anything that you could comprehend or think of or dream up in your wildest imagination. 
But you need to keep your eyes on that prize. Because if you don't, you'll have a tendency to wander to the left hand or to the right. You know, it's interesting, you know, a marathon. Again, just that that illustration that Paul uses so often throughout the New Testament. That longest run. I've never done one of those, and I'm to that point now where the hope of that has faded. I will not ever run a marathon. And I'm not upset about that too much, you know. But there was a time, a day, when I was more into that kind of thing. And there's something about a marathon that, 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 that it's incredibly puzzling and mysterious to watch. Is that here's these people that have literally convinced themselves that they want to run 26 and a half miles or whatever it is. That's crazy in and of itself. But there they are on the starting line and the gun goes off and the people take off and, and there's this buzz in the air. There's crowds of people that are cheering. You know, it's televised, and you see people are refreshed. They're excited. They're, they're going for it. They have a goal. They're doing it, you know. And then you see the end of the race. The cameras are there at the finish line. And you look at the finish line, and there's crowds of people, and there's excitement. And, and you see these people that are, have run this, this marathon, and yet somehow they're sprinting. They've done this, but now they're at the end, and they're just going for it. They're looking who's around them. They're competing. They're, they're running it out to the end. And, and we tend to think of things in terms of beginnings and endings. Listen, beginnings and endings are very exciting. But I would imagine there's something that happens about the 14th mile. You're all alone. There's nobody around encouraging you. There's no crowd. The terrain is no longer smooth and paved, but now it's uphill and rocky and your ankles are feeling the abuse of it the weather has turned and now it's raining and you begin to ask yourself what in the world was i thinking who would ever in their right mind run a marathon why am i doing this i'm crazy my friends said i was crazy they were right i'm out of my mind why am i doing this see and that can happen in the christian life You see, we start off, we come to Christ, and we're filled with His Spirit, we're alive, we understand life, and we're excited. There's crowds of people, God bless you, amen, the angels are cheering, you're saved, you know, and the whole thing. And we say, yes, I'm giving it all for Jesus. And, you know, the same thing happens at the end. You know, we get excited, something happens in the Middle East, you know, the hope of the rapture, or teaching on prophecy, something, and we go, yeah, and we feel refreshed and revived, we're going to heaven. But aren't there seasons of the Christian life where you feel like you're on the 13th mile? feel like you're all alone there's nobody around anymore you start to think man my friends were right i am crazy your feet hurt you haven't heard from god it's raining on your head and you wonder what's the point of all this why am i doing it listen keep your eyes on the prize keep your eyes on the prize we've been called unto an inheritance predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Don't forget, Christian, that you have a destiny. That you're going somewhere and that it's worth it. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. There is an end to this life. And there is a prize that awaits us. Keep that light in your eye and go for it, saith the Lord. The third thing that Paul says, it's in verse 13, it's concerning our certainty. We'll read verse 12. He says that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, The gospel of your salvation in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The first thing that he says there and it's in verse 13 he says in whom also you trusted after that you heard the word of truth. He brings us back to that point of salvation. And he says that you trusted in Christ and that your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ was a result of the fact that you heard his word. And that the hearing of his word produced within your heart a faith that saved your soul. Isn't it interesting that again and again in the Bible, it's not the seeing of a sign 
or the inexperience in the supernatural that saves a man, but it's very simply just the hearing of the gospel. What did Paul say to the Roman church? He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the apostle Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's hearing of the word that produces faith in someone's life. Some people say, well, if God would show me a sign, then I would believe. I say, no, you wouldn't. And I can prove it to you because the children of Israel in the Old Testament saw every possible sign you could see. They saw the Red Sea open and the whole nation passed on dry ground. They saw a mountaintop catch on fire. They saw water come out of a rock. They saw bread fall from heaven. They saw quails that they asked for come and die in the camp so that they could have as much meat as they wanted. They saw that God for 40 years sustained them in the wilderness. And yet when God spoke and he said, now go in and take the lamb, they said... He's going to kill us. We're going to die. We'll never do it. God, never do it. Listen, why didn't they believe? They saw every sign that you could possibly see. They'd experienced every supernatural phenomenon you could ever ask for. And yet it didn't produce one ounce of faith within any of them. But not too far off in the city of Jericho, there was a harlot named Rahab. And as those spies came to the house of Rahab, seeking refuge, seeking shelter, what did Rahab say to them? She said, listen, this whole city, we are terrified of your God and what he's going to do to us. There's no spirit within us because we have heard all that he did to the Egyptian and to the Sidonians and to Sihon, king of Og. Where did the faith come from? Hearing. See, faith comes from hearing and it's a choice whether or not we're going to believe it or not. Don't look for a sign from God. If you see a sign, you'll find a way to justify it away. Just hear the word of God and believe. He says, after you believed, after you heard, after you were saved, he says, then, the second half of verse 13, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The most glorious truth in all of the New Testament is that God has sent his very person his very presence to come and live inside of us it isn't that he's just stamped his name upon us or put his initials on but that he himself has come to live inside of us here paul talks of it and he speaks of it as a seal and he tells us that that seal serves a purpose in verse 15 or verse 14 he says that that seal the seal of god's spirit upon us is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession you say well this is king james it's killing me would you please explain what in the world he's talking about here the earnest is very simply just a down payment it's a down payment or a deposit if you would or a promise to pay or a promise to redeem it's something that you would do in that so so what does this seal of god this down payment or this deposit represent what does it mean three things really quickly number one the seal of god upon your life represents a finished transaction it represents a finished transaction when we bought our house you know they made us put a down payment on it in order to go into contract We were going into contract, which means that we were going to buy the house. We had already proven that we have the funds and that we can do it and that we want to. Everything's in a row. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to put a down payment on the house. And what that does is that it removes it from the market. No one else can come in and buy that house now as long as we have put down the earnest or the down payment of that redemption. It's, it's reserved for us in that sense. And now it's just a matter of time before we go and we redeem the rest of it by you know, coming to closing and going through the rest of the process and we're handed the keys and that kind of a thing. But the moment that you go into contract, it is considered in the mind of the buyer and of the seller that there is a deal. There is something that's going on here. But in the case of a man buying a house, it is contingent upon the ability of the humanity to be able to finish the deal. And therefore, those things get a little shaky. If you've ever bought a house, you understand. But in this instance, the buyer is God. And God says, look, seal, done. I bought it. And he puts his seal upon us, and it's a representation to us that it's a finished transaction. It is a done deal. No one else can take it. 
God is the sealer. He gives His Spirit. It's a finished transaction. It also signifies ownership. In Bible times, you were not identified by a signature like we are today. You know, yesterday we, well, I hope you voted. You know, we went to vote and, you know, they, they prove who you are, not by any picture form of ID, but simply by comparing the signature that you sign with the one that's on file. And they look at the two side by side and they say, okay, yeah, that's who you are. And then you can go and you can vote. In Bible times, they didn't do it that way. They would have a signet mark or a signet ring. And it would bear the initials of the person that held it or a symbol that somehow was unique to their individual person. And by pressing that seal into wax or by pressing it into a a contract in some way and raising that seal upon a document, it was the proof that you were the one, you were identified and that you were the one that was doing the signing. And it was a signet or a sign of ownership. The press of the signet signified ownership and the seal of God upon your life signifies ownership. That you have been bought with the blood, the Bible says over and over again. Thirdly, it represents security and safety. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, the Bible speaks of what will become of Satan in his final end. And it says that when Jesus Christ returns, that he will take Satan and that he will be bound in a pit. And you can read it, the verses up there. I'll read it to you also. In verse 2, it says that he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set, listen, a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. The word seal that is used in Revelation chapter 20 verse 3 is the same word for seal that is used here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. It is a seal of security whereby Satan cannot cross the barrier that's been sealed by God. Now, if in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, Satan is sealed and he cannot be released, then if God puts that same seal upon you, then let me ask you, Christian, at what point does Satan have access to anything inside of you? You're sealed, you're secure, you've been bought with the blood, and Satan cannot touch you. You belong to God, you've been bought by God, therefore he has no business. Now again, what does this have to do with our journey? Listen, there are times in the course of our lives that we will find ourselves in places and in seasons where we will ask ourselves the question, where is God? You ever been there? Where is God in this? Where is God? If God is real, then why is he allowing this? Why am I going through this? Why do I feel this way? Why is it that when I read his word, it doesn't bring me any life? Why is it that when I listen for his voice, there's nothing but silence? Why is it that when I sing praises, it feels so dry and so dead and so empty? Where is God, sometimes we say? God's there. I have a tangent I want to go off on right now. I don't have time to go off on it. But listen, part of the process of God within our lives is teaching us that He is there even when we don't feel Him. And the only way that He can do that is to bring us into seasons and situations where we don't feel Him, see? And when we come through it, and then we go through another one, and then we go through it, and then we go through another one, and then we come through it, after a while we begin to say, oh, okay, you're with me. You're with me. You've got me. You're carrying me. You're there. Even though I can't feel you, you're there. Even though I can't hear you, you're there. Even though this seems dark and depressing and and the hope is diminished, you're there. You're with me. See? And so the seal of God is as if God is speaking to us and he's saying, listen, never forget this. At the onset of this journey, every day of this walk on this narrow path, as you're on your way to heaven, never forget, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I have given you the seal, the earnest of my spirit, the down payment of what's coming, the redemption of the purchased possession. Don't ever forget that I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, God says. It's a finished transaction. I own you, and you are secure. I've got you. As we close the study tonight and the musicians can come. In these verses, God holds up for us three non-negotiable truths. And he gives them to us and he tells us to hold them before us continually. To keep these things on the forefront of our mind as we walk from here to heaven. As we go from 
where we are to the glory that he has called us unto. Number one, that his will in our lives is motivated by his desire to draw us near to him. That's what motivates God's will and what he does within our lives. Number two is that he's given us an inheritance, part of which we experience now and part of us awaits us in eternity to come. It keeps us focused. It keeps our feet heading in the right direction. It makes our lives safe, a shield against temptation. And concerning our certainty, he's given us the seal of his spirit, a guarantee of the salvation that he purchased with his blood, the proof of purchase and the barrier of protection. These things that Paul speaks to us of, they must be embraced by faith. They're contrary to feeling. That's why they're written. See, if we always could feel and and were aware in our senses of these things being true, then there would be no need for them to be written. But the fact that they're written here for us is an admonishment to us that, listen, you need to remember these things. Because your life is not always going to testify to the fact of it. But the Christian life is not based upon feeling. It's based upon fact. Many of us are learning that. It isn't how you feel. You can throw the feel thermometer away. How am I feeling today? Do I feel saved today? Do I feel like God loves me today? Listen, throw out the feel thermometer. It's fact. We walk by faith and not by sight. If you fall into the trap of walking by feelings, then you're always going to be on that roller coaster of up and down in your Christianity. I'm saved, I'm not. God loves me, he hates me. I'm happy, I'm depressed. You know, constantly going through that roller coaster Christianity. But when you can just come to the point where you can say, God, I believe you. I believe you. I believe that you sent your son to die for me. I believe that while I was your enemy, I was at the worst point, that it was then that you gave your son for me. I believe that you've put me on this path, that you've got an inheritance for me, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved. My place is there. It's predestined. I believe that you've given me your spirit, that you're going to help me. And it's when we can embrace and say, yes, God, I believe you. It's then that we find ourselves lifted up. See? He's got us. He's got us. His goodwill for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us, for the instruction, for the great peace that comes to us as we observe and taste, partake of these principles, the depths and the riches of your love, the abounding wisdom and prudence, the great blessing that you give. Father, we ask tonight that you would apply these things to us. That they wouldn't just stop in our mind, pique our interest or stir in our intellect, but that they'd penetrate to the depths of our heart, Lord. That we would embrace by faith the fact of what you've told us tonight. That you want us close to you. That you delight in us, Lord that it's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Father, please, I pray if there's anyone here tonight that's struggling, perhaps going through something so heavy, so dark, perhaps some that despair even of life, Lord, I would ask right now that you would give them the grace to see through the outward of all of that and somehow just catch a glimpse what you're producing through it in their lives. I pray that their despair would be replaced by hope. That their doubt would be replaced by perfect love that casts out all fear. They'd be filled with courage. That their minds would be set upon you, Lord. That you'd strengthen their knees and lift up their hands that their hearts would again catch on fire for you in the midst of the trial. It is you that said, blessed are they who being in the valley of weeping make it a well. Father, we trust you tonight. We trust you, Lord. We know that you're good. 
Just pray for everyone here, Father, please. Renew in their minds your promise towards them. Ignite their heart again with that perfect love that you give. May we experience you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.